As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today is a man you have probably seen in the background of every interview with every U.S. men's national team coach since the early 2000s. It's Michael Cameraman. Michael, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. Michael is the press officer for the U.S. men's national team. Michael, I appreciate you being here today. Hey, Taylor. It's great to, great to be with you. So I wanted to uh, give a little bit of background as to how this came to be. Uh, Michael has been in touch in the last couple of weeks, I think both in his official capacity and in his unofficial capacity as just, you know, a good guy uh, to express sympathy for Daryl and or support for the show and everything like that. So we were talking yesterday uh, just about some things that you all are going to be doing. I don't know how much you want to talk about that. I'll leave that to you. And it kind of evolved into a larger conversation about your time with the national team and some stories you had. And it felt like maybe a good idea for a show. So here we are. But first, I wanted you to uh, have the opportunity to talk a little bit, if you so choose, about uh, about Daryl or what uh, U.S. Soccer might be doing with Daryl. Yeah, Taylor, and I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, as a starting point, you know, on behalf of everyone at U.S. Soccer, we offer our condolences to, to Daryl's family and friends and everyone that he meant so much to. You know, when when you think about what Daryl represented and what he he's brought to the soccer community, his passion, his pride, his love of the national team, his, his commitment those those are the kind of qualities that are inspirational, and and those are the kind of qualities that you would ask and hope for of every player on the national team and everyone who represents the United States. So, you know, I know that uh, U.S. Soccer President. Cindy Parlo-Cone and CEO Will Wilson have, have sent a letter to Shannon and the family. And again, those, those are the types of, of qualities that, that we find inspirational in it. And it's, it, he's the kind of guy that you'd want to be a part of your team. And our team is going to find a way to acknowledge that tomorrow ahead of the game against Wales. Which is uh, very much appreciated, obviously, and, and uh, I heard a little bit about what you all are planning to do, and it, 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 uh, it got me emotional, so I'm guessing it will get uh, some of our listeners emotional as well. But the, the story that I told uh, when sort of talking about my, my last interaction with Daryl was 100% genuine, that like his, 
his enthusiasm for the national team. Like I told him Wolves had messaged and and he was like, oh, that's like, okay, that's cool. And then I said the national team had as well. And that was the thing that kind of made his eyes go big. So you're not wrong that I think his passion for the team was uh, was pretty strong. And, and I do very much hope that the players uh, have that same level of dedication. Look, one thing I can tell you, Taylor has been a part of the national team now for almost 20 years. And it's consistent with every coach, with every player, with every person who who works behind the scenes is the, 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 the responsibility and the pride they feel in representing the United States. It's something that the group takes seriously. It's something that's discussed uh, every time that we're together. And it's something that's really just a part of the DNA of the group that everyone understands that it's, uh, it's a privilege. It's an honor. Uh, it's something we take pride in uh, and something that's with us every time we get together. With the kind of current iteration of this national team, which is a strange thing to talk about, given that we've had this will but be the second game of, of 2020. We haven't had or third, maybe we haven't had many games uh, th- this year. Who are the figures, at least in the last like year or two, that have sort of been the ones to make sure everybody knew what it meant to be playing for this team? Who are the ones in the locker room who are sort of motivating everybody, keeping that positivity going and keeping that message going? Well, it, it starts with leadership. Taylor, and that leadership starts with Greg Berhalter. Um, obviously, Greg is a guy who, who has been in the U.S. soccer system since he was a young player himself. Um, he represented the United States 44 times in two World Cups. He was part of the most uh, successful national team in a World Cup uh, you know, in 2002, prior, prior to the previous 72 years. And, and you know, also involved were Ernie Stewart, the general manager of, you know, at the time and now the sporting director uh, and Josh Wolf, uh, who has since moved on, but three guys who were a part of that 2002 team. And, you know, uh, looking back on the 2002 world cup, you know, going into that tournament, what I can tell you is when we were in that training camp in Cary, North Carolina, uh, prior to going to, to Korea, you could tell, that the group had something special. And it doesn't mean that you could tell that we were going to have the results that we did and certainly things have to go your way in a World Cup. There, you know, one bounce can change everything. But the sense in the inside that group of what it meant to be a team, what it meant to fight for each other, what it meant to, to the opportunity to do something special, it was clearly there. And again, it doesn't mean you knew that how the results were going to go, but you had a sense that that team could do something could do something special and so when you had greg when you had ernie when you had josh guys that that came through that and lived it and understood it and passed it on that's where it started going back and reading some of the coverage of that team it's really interesting to me because there's an element of like can you believe that like usa today is talking about the national team can you believe the new york times is talking about the u.s national team um and and it feels like in that moment there was this sort of like surprise that people were this interested in the u.s national team i'm gonna guess that has sort of changed with the modern team the modern iteration of the national team how much has the sort of press coverage changed uh since you've been with with, uh, u.s soccer which has been what 19 years thereabouts uh, yes, I actually remember the day I started, May 29th, uh, 2001, and I was on the road four days later with the team. Uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, the growth has been exponential, and not just for the coverage of the national team, 
of coverage of MLS and just coverage of, of the sport overall. I think, you know, people around the world are amazed sometimes to hear about the breadth of, uh, of, of how much we've grown in the United States, not just, you know, the, the domestic league, but we can watch more games here in the United States on the weekend than anywhere in the world by far. I mean, when we put together the list of our, you know, of our viewing schedule for the weekend, you're talking about 70 games plus, and it's from leagues all over the world, not just Europe, but Central America and South America, and obviously all the games here. So the, the, the exposure, the coverage, the soccer culture in, in a generation is something that we can all be extremely proud of. But I think like what, what I kind of am left wondering is like when I look at that team or like 2002, even 2006, there's this like it seems to be there's this enthusiasm and excitement for like I, I'm doing a New York Times interview. Like I'm going to be on the radio today. And maybe this is just my assumption. So I'm interested to hear if I'm wrong. But I guess I feel like it has to be a little bit maybe more negative now, that relationship. That to some extent, I wonder if the players in that locker room, instead of being like, hey, I get to do a radio spot or more like, oh, I have to do a radio spot today. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that, Taylor. Um, first of all, our players, you know, the, 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 in, in sports in the United States, right? It's no matter if it's soccer or basketball, baseball, NFL, we grow up in culture where athletes are expected to be available to media. Uh, and soccer is no different. Now, one, one thing I can tell you from having spoken to colleagues in other sports uh, is that we are lucky that our players are so accessible, are so accommodating, are so uh, polished when it comes to dealing with the media. Because I can tell you in some, in some of the other sports, the, yeah. the guys that do my job have a lot tougher go with it. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and, and when it comes to the national team, you know, again, I think our players by and large understand that this is part of, of the responsibility. Now, look, it's not always a fun thing to do, and it's not always an easy thing to do, um, particularly, you know, when things aren't going our way. Um, you know, and that's been the case. It was obviously the case when we didn't qualify for the World Cup. Um, but, but I, you know, one of the messages along those lines, Taylor, that we talk to players about is that the way you demonstrate your leadership is when things are hard. That it's easy to do when it's easy. But when you have to... to be able to go out there and, and answer the kind of questions that we do when things don't go your way. Uh, that's what you demonstrate what you're about. That's what you demonstrate your character, et cetera. And, and I'll give you an example because I was thinking about this after we talked about it yesterday. And uh, it's one that I share with players often. And that is the 2003 Confederations Cup. I know we're going way back, right? But when we played in the Confederations Cup 2003, one of our games was against Brazil. And we lost that game 1-0, and people can go back and look it up and watch the, the highlights and stuff. And the way we wound up losing that game 1-0 was, was on a play where Greg Berhalter made a mistake. And so the way we, we run our, our uh, post-game media process, or just to give you a little insight, is the way it works is that there's a, a press conference with the coach, and then we do what's called a mix zone. So in international soccer, and actually in soccer around the world, um, locker rooms aren't open for media. It's a, that's a unique thing in American sports. 
So the interviews that are done with players are done with an area that's outside of the locker room, somewhere between the locker room and the team bus. So the players essentially have to walk that way anyway. Uh, and that's how you funnel it. And you have, it's called a mix zone. You got players on one side of a rack, reporters on the other, and they walk through and they stop and talk. So when, the way we run it is the press conference always comes first, just from a timing perspective. And we ask our players not to leave the locker room until the, the press conference is done because reporters are in the middle of a press conference. And so they can't be in two places at once. So we ask our players not to leave to make sure that reporters have access to the guys. And I can also tell you that other teams around the world, not all, not all but most, don't do it the way that we do. The players are not as nearly as accessible as our guys. So we lose the game. Bruce does the press conference. And just through a mix-up of communication, the players get through the mix zone before uh, the press conference, press conference was over. So the entire team is now on the bus. So we finish the press conference, go out to the big zone, there's nobody around. Obviously, all the reporters want to speak to people, and in particular, they want to speak to Greg. So I go on the bus while the whole team is waiting to leave and say to Greg, listen, sorry, man, there was confusion. The reporters didn't get a chance to talk to you. They'd like to speak to you. Do you mind doing it? And he says, no problem. Now, this is a guy who just had to play that cost us a game. And he gets off of the bus to go talk to reporters about the mistake that he made. That's character. I mean, that also probably was not the most fun job for you, I'm guessing, to have to go in there and be like, hey, guy who just had a, a terrible day, can you go talk to a bunch of people publicly about how terrible that day was? I'm guessing that wasn't the most fun for you. But you're absolutely right that like the... The, the U.S. always does a really good job of that. I think I was covering, like, Timmy Chandler's first game for the U.S., I think it was against Argentina and New York. And I remember leaving the press conference and everybody was sort of excited because you get to talk to the players, but also, like, you know, little Messi's around. That's pretty amazing. And I think by the time the press conference was over, all the U.S. players were still available to, to do mix zone interviews. I'm pretty sure the entire Argentina team was already on the bus. So, yeah, it has been the case, I think, for me that uh, the players are there and available. And then with, with that... They're also, I think to your point, really willing to talk about whatever. There have been plenty of times where we've been next to the Cooligans because we like hanging out with them uh, when, we're in, when we're in mixed zones. And they'll be asking, you know, sort of like, like lighthearted questions. And then like, West, like to Weston McKinney, who will then step over to us and I will ask him like, now, do you prefer the number eight or would you rather be a hybrid 10 or something like that? And he flips right into like game mode. And, and I just I'm always amazed by people who at such a young age are able to balance all of those things and handle those requirements. I'm guessing that that is also a big part of your job is kind of keeping them mo moving, facilitating interviews. What is your sort of your job when it comes to those mixed zones? Like, is that when you are at your most busy on a game day? On a game day, yes. Um, and, you know, a game day is, has its own kind of unique cadence to all the other times that we have training sessions or press conferences or, or, or other media availabilities. Because by and large, at that point on the game day, we're not doing interviews until after the game. The only, well, there's two exceptions. One is for broadcast rights holders, we'll do an interview with a coach or a player as soon as they arrive, what we call off-the-bus interview. Uh, and those things are typically taped, and then you'll see it in the broadcast. Uh, and then sometimes at halftime, we will do uh, you know, a live interview with the coach. Other than that, uh, yeah, everything revolves around the, the press conference and the mix zone after the game. 
and look, so when, when uh, the, you know, my responsibility, as you asked about what we do after, mm-hmm. after the game, my responsibility is twofold. One is try to make everyone accessible that, that reporters are interested in speaking to. But just from, from a player and coach perspective, to try to make sure these guys can anticipate and understand what might get asked, particularly when you think you have moments of controversy. One, when we lose games. Two, if there's a controversial referee decision. Three, if you know we, if we didn't have a good game, or there's, you know we anticipate that there's going to be difficult questions. So we just at least try to give them some understanding of what they expect, so they can think about it and be prepared to answer. Because look, it's not an easy thing in the time immediately after the game to deal with these things, right? It's it's emotional for one. Two, you've got you know you've got other things going on, and, and so it takes a little bit of, of focus um, because the moment the the messages you get right after a game obviously say a lot. They say a lot to fans, to media, but also to your teammates. So they need an opportunity to to, to be to think about it going into it as well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I, I do also think that you help to some extent with like media and their questioning as well. Uh, the last time I think we interacted face to face was in New York, uh, and I, I was kind of w- waiting for Burhalter uh, to kind of come down the media line. You, you were standing next to me, we were chatting, and you said like, "What, what are you going to ask him about it?" I think I told you like I can't even remember what it was, but it was a very specific question, and you kind of thought about it for a second. You're like, "You might want to just like phrase it this way instead of that way," and I like thought about it. I was like, "Oh yeah, that is a more accessible way," and it did make him I think open up a bit more, like. How much experience do you have with that of sort of knowing what the players may be going to want to answer, what they're not going to love answering so much and kind of helping to make sure the interview goes well, as opposed to the player just sort of shutting down in that moment? Yeah, look, so I think it's important to, to, to appreciate, Taylor, that, that ours is not an adversarial relationship mm-hmm. with media, right? I think sometimes people think because I'm the press officer and you're the journalist that I'm trying to prevent you from doing your job or finding out information. And look, there are certainly moments where there's information that we would prefer not to get out and you would prefer to have, right? <laughs> A good example is lineups. Yeah. And obviously, you know, our lineups are some of the most interesting things and the most anticipated things uh, for fans and media to consider. And that's not necessarily information that we would like our opponents to have before a game. Oh, no? And you no? can, you right. can like, part you can agree or disagree whether or not you think it matters, right? Some people say, look, the player's a player, and it's not going to change anything. Well, you know, it, it can change preparation. It can change the way the coaches and players think about things. And, and at the very least, the coaches and players think it matters. So, and I'll give you another example. We look we go back to the 2002 World Cup. When we played Mexico, right, we switched to a 3-5-2. We hadn't played a 3-5-2 in the World Cup. We hadn't played a 3-5-2 for as long as I can remember under Bruce. Now, part of the reason why we did it was because of the injuries we had and because of the personnel that was available. But that was a pretty significant shift at that time in terms of the way we were planning on approaching the game. 
So that was something we didn't want people to know. And fortunately, we managed to keep it that way. And what happened in that game? 28 minutes in, Mexico makes a substitution. And it was a tactical substitution. Try to think back to the time that, mm-hmm. that tactical substitutions had been made in a World Cup in the first half. Yeah. So, you can, again, you can argue or agree or disagree about whether how much it matters. But point is, uh, yeah, there are moments where and times where we would prefer that information was now. But, uh, but by and large, our job or my job is to be as a resource as much as possible, a resource to media, uh, help them do their jobs well, because obviously we, the, the better that the jobs that our journalist colleagues do, the better it is for our team and the better it is for, for the sport. We're, we're a resource as much as anything else. So if I can help people understand better what the topics are, I can help them ask a question in a way that will elicit a better response, uh, then I think that's useful. And, and look, on the flip side, we, I don't tell players what to say. We don't script answers. What we do do is try to tell them what, what they can expect and how their answers might be perceived. And then it's up to, to, to those guys to go out and, and say what they want to say. That makes sense. Are, are players generally like pretty receptive to that? or Can you tell when they're listening, or, or, or can you tell when they're sort of zoned out thinking about what they just want to say? No, I think players are the players understand responsibility, mm-hmm. and 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 they understand that what they have to say matters. So I I do think that they think about or at least at least you can put it on the radar. Now look, the the experienced guys, the veteran guys, guys are total pros. They don't really, you know, they don't necessarily need the same kind of guidance. It's more just awareness. Other guys, uh, you know, it, it is valuable and useful to them to have some insight into how they say things and how it can be perceived. And look, for me, Taylor, the guiding principle for us is the most important audience in all of this are the other guys in the locker room. So what gets said publicly, obviously, it's important to media, it's important to fans, and it's certainly important to us to help in, in terms of building the sport and building support around the team. But the most important messages are the ones that get delivered to the rest of the guys in the group. So what they say publicly matters because obviously everyone's paying attention. Uh, so in your tenure with, with the national team, you've obviously had uh, several different managers. Uh, how different is your like day-to-day life is your job uh, based on the manager? Is it pretty much kind of consistent regardless of who's there or have others uh, made it more challenging or, or like made you have to do more work than maybe others? <laughs> keeping that as vague as possible wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a that's a great way of asking that uh, question Taylor. um i would say it this way i think the 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 job does change does change some based on the manager's approach to um i guess in, in a couple ways there's the day-to-day function of how we conduct our media operations and availability. Some guys, some coaches would prefer we do media availability before training. Some would prefer after as an example. Right. And that's just like more of a, not just a practical thing, but how they prefer the the, the daily schedule to go. I think the, the different ways that in a larger sense, 
is how much the manager wants to be involved in the messaging that, that we do externally. So does a manager want to be, uh, have a say in which players that, that we use for social media graphics? Does a manager want to have a say about which players we put in a press conference versus a mix zone? Um, does a manager want to be involved in our, at least to some degree, the, our approach to the content that we produce? Um, so it, in that sense, it does, it can change a bit from manager, manager to manager. And we, those are, those are not uh, daily conversations, but certainly uh, a lot of conversations prior to us going into a camp. Um, so there, there's that part of it. And then there is, you know, how different managers approach their, their uh, access to media and, and the way that they want to I think you can try to ask more specific questions, Taylor, but hopefully that gives you a picture. Yeah, it does. I, I think, like, I'll, I'll be honest and say where that question came from was I was reading, I think, it, I forget uh, where it was, but there was an interview with you where you were talking about, I think it was in preparation for the 2014 World Cup that you moved to California for six months to be closer to Jurgen Klinsmann and kind of, like, help help with uh, his availability there. And, and that felt to me like probably something you, you don't have to do always, but with Jurgen living in California, I'm guessing that necessitated that move. Um. Well, that's a good question, Taylor. And it, it, look, it, I've lived in Chicago uh, since 2001 when I moved here to uh, from Connecticut for the job. And the U.S. Soccer Federation is obviously based here in Chicago. That's where administrative offices are. There hasn't been, prior to Greg, a national coach that lived in Chicago. So Bruce lived in California. Bob lived in California. Jurgen lived in California. Uh Dave Sarakin as well. So we never, uh, the, the, the head coach prior to Greg has never been in the same place as Chicago. Um, so it's, it's really more a function of the, how the relationship works with each coach. Now, you know, I started at DC United as an intern in 1996. So I was with, uh, you know, then I became the press officer in 97. So I knew Bruce, from, you know, for the first couple of years, I knew Bob for the first couple of years. Uh, I knew Dave Sarakin. Uh, so we had, we had a kind of a, a longer relationship prior to them being coaches of the national team. So that part that I, I think that part was a little bit different. Uh, and also um, the way that we went around, we went around, uh, went about our work from a relationship perspective. Relationship perspective was a little bit different, so it wasn't as necessary uh, to be in the same place as those guys. I think in 2014 with Jurgen, with with so much going on, um, not just the daily media responsibilities, just our development of everything we were preparing ahead of the World Cup, not just the meet the inter the external stuff, but the inter internal stuff. I thought it was it was more useful to be there. And then, like, as you've said, you have these sort of personal relationships with these coaches, either you have them pre-existing or in working with them, I'm sure that bond grows. Like, like again, like seeing it from a different perspective, because I'm coming at it one way of, of being a member of the media and trying to ask questions and trying to get information. 
I think with that comes criticism and critique for for your side or from your perspective, um, since we're not on opposite sides, we're friends. Um, like, is it hard not to take that stuff personally? Like when Dave Sarakin is the interim manager and there are questions about like, who's this guy? Why is he here? Do you understand where those questions are coming from or because of your relationship? Are you a bit more like, well, you all should know that. Do your research. No, I definitely wouldn't say it that way. Our, our, you know, one of our primary responsibilities is to be a resource for media. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we try to do, Taylor, is provide background and provide perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. So we were talking about this yesterday, too. Right. Our, our only criteria for judging the work of media is, 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 is it objective and is it fair? It doesn't mean we have to like everything that people have to say about us. And obviously, we certainly don't. And it's not their job or your job as a journalist to uh, to be our supporters. Uh, so we certainly understand that part. And again, it's not always pleasant, but. If it comes from a place of objectivity, it comes place from a fairness, it comes from a place of of having the having information, and then that's all that we can ask. I think what makes it hard sometimes, Taylor, you asked about, you know, do I take it personally? Yeah. I don't take it personally. However, I feel bad at times when I feel like when I think we're that players or coaches are being judged unfairly because at the end of the day, all, all we can do, like I just described is try to provide information, try to buy, provide perspective, try to be persuasive. Um, and then, but then it's out of our hands. I, I can't impact a result. I can't impact what you're going to say or, what, or anyone else is going to say at the end of the day. So I, you know, I do take it, Personally, at times when when you when you see things that you feel are unfair, that like you wish you could have done more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You mentioned Kuva earlier, which is not a topic I really ever want to talk about again, but I do want to know, because I'm assuming you were there, I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into like what that 
what that locker room was like afterwards, what the kind of players' reaction to it was, how you all were able to kind of pick up from that one. Because in that moment, I know for us watching at home, it was this sort of devastating gut-wrenching, like staring at the floor for a while performance, but then we go on and record, people watching in bars continue to drink, or you know, you switch on to the next program. For those guys who are there in that locker room, what is that evening like, and sort of what is the rest of the night like? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the environment at the game was just bizarre. And I say bizarre, Taylor, because we're in a, you know, a 1,500-seat stadium, with virtually no atmosphere and given everything that's on the line, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it just had this, it did, it was almost like an eerie feeling in the stadium, particularly the the way the game was playing out. Um, You know, (laughs) for me, I had the responsibility during the game of keeping the bench updated on the other results so I was literally on the phone the whole time, you know, standing several feet away from the bench uh, while the updates are coming in. And so, you know, <laughs> it was just, it's, it's horrifying mm-hmm. in the moment. And, you know, just the, the feeling of helplessness while, while you see everything unfold. Um, so that was a pretty tough moment. And then uh, the, locker room as, as you can imagine was just you know was dead silent uh you know shock disappointment sadness everything that you would expect and imagine um and it, but it does go back to one of the things i talked about earlier uh which is character and so you you ask what it's like to have to go in those moments imagine now having to go to players after the worst moment in their professional lives to now go face what is a huge media contingent to talk about the biggest disaster we've had as a national team in our history. And I look back on that moment and those guys with a tremendous amount of respect and and pride for what they did. Omar Gonzalez, who obviously was responsible for the first own goal, walked up to me in tears and said, I'm ready. I didn't go ask him. He walked up to me and said, I'm ready to do it. Mm-hmm. Tim Howard, Josie, Michael Bradley was picked for doping control. And Taylor, you and I share a little bit of doping control stories in the past. Yeah. It's about how it relates to me, not, <laughs> not anything bad. <laughs> but when you get picked for doping control, you know, it's, it's a random thing. So 75 minutes into the game, they picked passports randomly. And those are the two guys that get tested. And when that happens, as soon as the game is over, you get escorted into a doping control room. You don't go to the locker room. You don't do media. You have to go sit in a room and wait till you can complete the test, which as you can imagine, can take a long time. So in Cuba, you know, the, the room is like basically a small, unair-conditioned room. And Michael Bradley had to sit in that room for an hour and a half before he could complete the test. So he's just in there by himself. And the entire media convention has waited to speak to Michael Bradley. And as soon as he came out of the, the room, he said, let's go. And he stood there and 
obviously answered, again, the most difficult questions in their lives. So I, I, I felt a lot of pride in the character of this guy. In the worst moment of their lives, they were ready, willing, able to face it. And since then, obviously, you have a lot of change. Bruce Arena steps down. Sanuga uh, decides not to run for election again. We have a new president. Then we have another new president. Then we have COVID. It's been a tumultuous couple years for U.S. soccer. Um, what what has been the sort of like maybe moving away from like the year after COVID and everything like that? But in the COVID era, particularly, how what has that meant for U.S. soccer on a day to day basis? What has that meant for you? How has it changed your job in the pandemic? Uh, well, I, the, the, obviously the biggest thing is we don't have, we haven't had games. And so, you know, it's not just as a national team, but as an organization, you know, what, what, uh, how do you operate in the time of COVID like everyone else? Um, and, you know, so we were able, you know, as an organization, we spent a lot of time focusing on trying to be a leader in the soccer community in dealing with the situation around COVID. So the, one of the first things we did was our Bend the Curve campaign, which was try to create public awareness about how to, to reduce the, the rate of infection. And obviously wearing a mask was one of the biggest things. Uh, secondly, we worked heavily on our Play On initiative, which was a set of comprehensive guidelines for all of our membership uh, on the, the the way they could safely return to play when government said it was uh, when government said it was allowed. So we focused a lot on trying to service our membership in the way that we could as the governing body and as as leaders in the sport in the country. Um, and and you know that meant a lot to us. And then, and then from a from a national team perspective, really what we you know we've tried to focus on is, is watching and promoting the individual development of our players. I mean, who would have imagined, right? In the last, what's happened in the last six months with Weston McKinney going to Juventus yep. and Sergio Des going to Barcelona and the emergence of Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic being a, a leader and now a number 10 at Chelsea. I think like the, the the emergence and development of these guys that we were watch, watching since 2018 uh, has just been really exciting. And so one of the things that, you, you know, I think everyone is feeling going into this week is just excitement, excitement to have these guys back and excitement to take our finger off the pause button and get back to work on the things we've been developing in 2019. I do want uh, have a couple questions about this current roster, but I have one more about the pandemic. Uh, from what you from what you understand, how has Greg been handling it? Because it seems like he's been able to keep in touch with everybody, monitor everybody's progress, and keep an eye on some dual nationals at the same time. What has his uh, quarantine been like? Yeah. So I, I don't think it, you know this. The topic has been covered before about the difference between coaching a club and coaching a national team. And one of the hardest adjustments for any coach when you come to the national team is just the lack of the day-to-day interaction with your team, with your players. You're not on the field every day. Like you are, you know, you know when like Greg was in Columbus, you have your players 10 months out of the year and you have a real ability to have a, a you know, a daily impact. When it's the national team, it's almost, it's the opposite. 
you have very limited amount of time and you have to have try to have maximum impact. So that's always an adjustment for a, a coach coming into the national team. Now add in for Greg and his staff the fact that we haven't had games in nine months and and uh, you know they're just they've been chomping at the bit. But what they did a really good job was of maintaining contact with the individual players, maintaining um, a group discussion. Uh, there's been plenty of soccer discussions on a weekly basis. You know, each of the coaches are assigned a group of players and they talk about performances on the weekend. They go through video. They also, you know, go through video on the na- on national team, their position there. Um, so they've done the best they can of trying to keep the group going. Um, and now, you know, they've had that last couple of days to be together. And, I, you know, uh, it, as much as everyone's excited, our first full training session with this group was yesterday. It's not a and lot of crap. now we have a game. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, look, I was looking at it, Taylor, right? So even in 2019, for all the games that we played, you know, Tyler Adams played one game in March. Yeah. John Brooks played two games. Serginio Des played three games. So as much as excitement is about the individual guys and how they've developed, uh, you know, with their clubs, as a you know as a nucleus of of our team, we're still a work in progress. We are still a work in progress, but I am going to ask you about that one training session. Uh, from what you've heard, did anybody in particular stand out? How do the new guys look uh, coming into a senior camp? Yeah, look, I, I think it's it's really hard to say from one training session, Taylor. I think what you can say is just the general level of excitement. Like the guys are just really happy to be back together, really happy to see each other again, excited to welcome new faces. And that's one thing also, Taylor, my experience has been consistent. It's just, you know, the guys are always happy to to get back together. And so many of them rose through the ranks of the youth national teams too. So while we have 10 players who were trying to get their first cap, a lot of them have seen each other along the way through youth national teams, youth world cups, et cetera. So there, there is that bond that exists already. um, And really just looking forward to getting back at it. In your experience, who is the veteran in this current team that is most likely to kind of put an arm around a newbie if something goes wrong or, or try to just kind of keep the atmosphere light, pick guys up when they need to be? Who is that, uh, that player or players? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about veterans, you know, on this roster, <laughs> right? exactly. I mean, there's, like, there's one old guy, and that's Marine, and he's got about 40 caps. And I think the next one is, is, has 17. Yeah. So, like, there isn't a, there's there's not a ton of what you would call veterans, um, but you know there are guys who are bigger personalities. So you can take a Weston McKinney, for example. You know, Weston is always he's a he's a really outgoing guy, and he's not afraid to show it. Um, you know, Tyler hasn't been in much, but that's cut. You know, kind of Tyler's mo anyway. You know, Christian is certainly a leader. Um, you know, Serge is, is emerging as, you know, his personality is coming out uh, too. Randy Cannon, another guy. So I think what's, what's fun about this group is they're kind of doing it together. This is more of a, <laughs> this, this is more of a leadership group at the moment, because again, 
or as, you know, as, as well as we know the names of these young guys, we still, the group, have really been together a ton. Uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, I was sort of – it took me a minute to realize who you were talking about when you said Serge. Is, is that the nickname he's gone for or been given by his national team teammates? Is he Serge to them? <laughs> so you would be amazed at how difficult it is to get a player to tell you what his name is. <laughs> like, for example, Why is that? You know, with, with, I, I don't know. Like when you like with uh, say take take Fabian Johnson, mm-hmm. right? Everyone here in the U.S. pronounce it Fabian. Yeah, his name he pronounces his name Fabian. But you ask him, what do you prefer? He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. So that's how you wind up with a bunch of different pronunciations of names. So what we've done to the what we've done to alleviate that issue is anytime a player comes in and we have a question about their pronunciation. We ask them to say it, and we record it. You, can we have access to that, please? To please. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now we can say to everyone, right from the horse's mouth. So see, yeah. in, back in 2017, that's what we did with Christian. And that's how you know, we tried to get everyone to understand that he, he pronounces his name Pulisic. Mm-hmm. Now, how many different ways do you hear his last name pronounced? Uh, 10 million, um, I think. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And, and fair enough, like you, you could, you know, with, if you were in Croatia, you would say it differently. But that's how he pronounces his name. And Serge is the name that he goes by and that all his teammates call him. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I, I know you've got places to be, uh, places to be, or if not to be, then calls to make. Uh, I did want to ask you really quickly about sort of your advice to media uh, for people who are maybe just starting out, just getting into it. Uh, what's in your mind the best process for sort of strengthening your resume when it comes to applying for credentials? What are you all looking for, generally speaking, and what can people do to sort of make make sure that kind of they're uh, putting their best foot forward? Oh, that's a good question, Tyler. I guess so. If you're asking for like people who are starting out, I would say that what you need to do, or what we look at, is you you need to develop a um, uh, reputation and develop uh, a history. So, you know, one of of the things that we would look at. So, if someone sends me a, a request. And I don't haven't seen their publication or necessarily not familiar with their name. Then I'll go back and, and and look at their work. So I'll look at what they've written. I'll listen to a podcast uh, and just try to get a sense of, you know, where they're at in terms of their professionalism, their ability, uh, and the way they go about their work. And and I think that's how you can develop a reputation. One just by the you know developing a, a catalog or a library but also in the way that you go about um, in the way you go about your business, the way you request interviews, um, the way you handle them once you get them. And again, it's not our job to like or dislike what people say about us, but um, you know, when every, when a hundred people are asking for an interview with Christian Pulisic, we do have to make choices. And those are the kind of things that we would look at. So I think developing a reputation by the work that you do, by the relationships you build with the people who, who do, you know, my job. And again, it's not about judgment of like or not like. It's more about, you know, um, things like professionalism. 
Uh, and then once you do that, uh, then I think then the door starts to open. And the other part too, which you can't really, it's hard in the COVID world, right? But a big part of it, Taylor, is just showing up. Yep. Be a part of press conferences. Be a part of training sessions. Be around the team, the be the people that you want to interview. Because the more familiar they become with you, come with you, the more likely they are to be willing to be accessible. And then my piece of advice, uh, based on experience, have I told you about the the, the story of how you, like you and I first interacted? No, but I hope it's a good one. <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty funny. Uh, it was when I first started covering uh, soccer. It was like preseason games. It was those like like Milan playing Chelsea in Baltimore, and so I went to it. I was all ready to be professional. <laughs> And everybody there who was English and most other people were, you know, in like shorts and flip flops and Hawaiian shirts and whatever. And I was sort of like, oh, it's a very relaxed approach to covering sports, not realizing, of course, that it's preseason. So it's preseason for the people who are covering it. They don't care as much. But I took that approach to my first U.S. game uh, in Philly in 2009, I guess it would have been, against uh, Turkey. And I get on the elevator. I think I'm wearing like cargo shorts and like sandals and like a maybe a button up shirt. And I get on the elevator. It stops. And I think like you get on there with maybe like it might have been Gooch who wasn't playing that game or like two other people. Everybody looking very, very dapper. And I like kind of in an awkward moment was like, I guess I didn't get the dress memo. And I think you, you very like it was like perfectly timed as, as the doors open. You were like, well, you know, some people dress up. And then you looked me like up and down very slowly and said, some people don't. And then you just walked off the elevator. And I was like, all right, wear a suit and tie next time. Got it. And that is pretty much how I've approached covering the national team since then. Well, you don't need to wear a suit and tie, Taylor. In fact, I try not to do it when I don't have to. Um, but. I mean, certainly the way you appear makes a difference. And I can tell you one thing for sure. If you wear a jersey, you won't be getting a question in a press box. <laughs> that is a great rule of thumb. And I think a perfect one to end on. But I do mean, like, it was in the moment, it was a perfect level of burn. And also, like, oh, yeah, I probably should have uh, seen this one coming. So, yes, I think the number one takeaway is don't wear a jersey uh, and especially not a, a like self-customized jersey into a press conference. Maybe that that's great advice, and that's probably a good point to end on. So, Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk about all these various topics and kind of give people an insight into what you do and what's been going on with U.S. soccer. But I also, again, really appreciate you reaching out about Daryl and sort of um, you all, to be honest, just appreciating who he was and the work he did, because I know that would have meant a lot to him because of how much you all meant to him. So, again, it's it's very much appreciated, and thank you for that. Yeah, well, again, Taylor, I appreciate the opportunity, and, um, you know, it, it, it means a lot to the group the way that that uh, we get supported. I, I know it probably doesn't always feel like that at times, or you think that maybe the players don't recognize it or don't don't appreciate it. But I can tell you from having traveled all over the world with this group that they that they really do. Um, and, and so for us to have the opportunity to to recognize Errol and you know what he meant to the soccer community and to all of you, you know we're, we're honored to be able to do it. Well, keep an eye out. Uh, folks can keep an eye out for, for that uh, tomorrow. I think uh, prior to the game, we'll definitely uh, retweet things uh, when they come through. But for now, Michael, uh, really, it's very much appreciated. And thank you again. Anytime, Taylor.